Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth interviews with some of the most accomplished and influential songwriters, from the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer sharing his or her insights into the creative process, their approach to the craft, their influences, and the stories behind the songs, from the hits to some of the lesser-known deep cuts. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think by sharing your thoughts with us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Two in the Morning, as recorded by a studio group dubbed Spooner's Crowd at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and released by Chess Records' Cadet Imprint in 1966. Produced by Rick Hall, the record was written and performed by studio musicians Junior Lowe, Roger Hawkins, and today's guest on Songcraft, Spooner Oldham. Legendary keyboardist Spooner Oldham was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for his work as a sideman on classic Muscle Shoals recordings, including Mustang Sally, When a Man Loves a Woman, and Aretha Franklin's I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. As a songwriter, however, Spooner landed 25 different titles on Billboard's R&B, pop, and country charts, including many co-writes with partner Dan Penn, such as the top 10 classic I'm Your Puppet by James and Bobby Purify, It Tears Me Up by Percy Sledge, and Cry Like a Baby, which the box tops took to number two on the pop chart in 1968. The pair additionally scored with Bobby Bear's Top 40 country hit, In the Same Old Way, and R&B hits such as Solomon Burke's Take Me Just As I Am, Percy Sledge's Out of Left Field, and Laura Lee's Uptight Good Man. They also continued to find pop success with I Met Her in Church by The Box Tops and Sweet Inspiration by The Sweet Inspirations. In the 1970s, Oldham teamed up with Freddie Weller, with whom he co-wrote several country hits, including Lonely Women Make Good Lovers, which was a top-five charter for Bob Lumen in 1972, and again for Steve Warner in 1984. Additionally, his songs have been recorded by Janis Joplin, Etta James, Patti LaBelle, Charlie Rich, George Jones, Clarence Carter, Sam and Dave, Dionne Warwick, Diana Ross, Patti Page, Barbara Streisand, Elton John, and Elvis Costello. Just to let you know, due to some bad weather and some technical difficulties, unfortunately, we've got a little bit more noise on Spooner's call line than we'd like to. So you're going to hear some buzzes and some clicks and pops. But we're cool with it, and Spooner's cool with it, and we know you want to hear from him. So we're going to move ahead and start the show. Spooner, welcome to Songcraft. Well, nice to be here, yeah. Well, uh, you started life as, as Dewey Lyndon Oldham in Center Star, Alabama. How did you get the name Spooner? That nickname came about... Uh, my my good friend Charles Phillips, who uh, he we were in uh, I think the fifth grade together one day, and my right eye had a cloud over the pupil; it, it was blinded really. And he asked me um, what happened to my the right eye, and I said, uh, "Well, when I was two or three years old, a uh, toddler, I climbed up in the on the stove handles at my mom and dad's uh, house in the kitchen, and I." I pulled over what I thought was an empty pan, but it has it had a spoon in there, and it hit me in the eye and uh, eventually blinded me. So he oh. thought it was sort of funny, I think, and I hated him for like two weeks and <laughs> hide from him in the hallways of school. Yeah, but as time went on, you know, it literally stuck, and I, <laughs> I got used to the name. Yeah, yeah, that's it. where it started. Wow. And in those early days, uh, who were your first musical influences? Well, you know, radio was the thing, and then I'm I'm 71 years old, so I, I was 
around the early days of TV, but uh, as I look back on those days, I, it seemed like I favored a lot of uh, keyboard players, so like Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, yeah. Little Richard. Your dad was kind of a country musician, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Uh, they had an interesting blend. I wish I'd recorded them. I don't. I think they did one recording. I asked Dad once. I said, "Did you ever do any records?" He said, "No." Uh, RCA offered our band a contract, and I said, well, why didn't you record? He said, well, there's seven of us, and they only wanted to give us 3%. I said, no. Uh, <laughs> right. But there you go. Uh, and they had auditioned for the Grand Ole Opry and passed, but the war came along and broke, broke their little party up. So he was a young man when he had to give it up from injury in the war in 19 when I was born, I think. Wow, yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, they had. It. I I remember listening to them in the living room at the house, and and in the summer when they could get outside in the, the yard and under a tree and play, you know. But it was sort of a mixture of bluegrass, western swing, folk. I, it was an interesting blend they had. And so there's your family playing country and bluegrass music, and you're a white kid in the segregated South in the '50s. So I'm curious, how did you start getting into black music? One reason is. Uh, I could hear it on the radio, John R. in Nashville and Ron Richburg and Hoss Allen. Sure, the famous uh, DJs from WLAC that broadcast there out of Nashville, uh, yeah. But there was something different about it that attracted me. Uh, and then I met Dan Finn, who he was a, a big rhythm and blues fan. And then I, you know, I was listening to Stax Records out of Memphis because we were sort of starting up thing down here in Alabama also, but right, right. I was liking what I was hearing, and uh, a lot of uh, black artists were playing with white musicians, I knew that, so I yeah. knew that didn't make any difference. Well, I understand that the that the whole Muscle Shoals area music scene really kind of began to coalesce in a, a makeshift studio above the city drugstore there in, in Florence, Alabama in late 50s, early 60s. Tell us a little bit about um, how you started hanging out with those guys and some of the people you were meeting there and how that scene kind of began to, to form and, and what that meant for your own development as a musician and songwriter. When I first went in there, it was already, you walk up the stairs and downstairs is a drugstore and uh, Tom Stafford, uh, I think he rented upstairs for like $30 a month from his dad, who was a pharmacist downstairs in the huh. drugstore. But we go up the stairs and Tom had a... a upright acoustic piano against the wall and you had it was like a uh, little recording studio i mean it was very basic but it was the first time as a teenager i'd seen a stuff something that looked like a studio and, <laughs> right and i think uh billy Sherrill he was mixing a little bit and then rick hall was in and out of there he wanted to be an engineer and was learning to mix so and then uh the david briggs another keyboard player friend right and then uh peanut montgomery yeah who played a lot of guitar and then there was a uh, uh jerry kerrigan a drummer he was up there and right. then uh norbert putnam was around there so it was an interesting kind of uh you know a lot of musicians and songwriters who for the most part were wannabes at that point <laughs> right very little was going on but everybody was able to communicate uh sure the dream, you know. Yeah. Was that where you first kind of got to know Dan Penn? Yeah, he came up one day from Vernon, uh, Alabama, his hometown. And then he came back again soon afterwards, and we got together 
and, and attempted to write. Neither one of us can remember. We wrote two or three songs, but we, I don't think we captured them or know what we did. But <laughs> right. we got the inkling that the chemistry that we liked the idea of writing. And and Dan Penn, at that point, oddly enough, had written a song that was sort of a hit uh, called Is the Bluebird Blue by Conway Twitty. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he was like 17, and I thought, <laughs> well, that's very interesting. He's young and already writing songs. So we just sort of kept that up for a long time. Yeah. Well, I know that that uh, you had mentioned, uh, you know, Billy Sherrill was around in those days, who who went on, of course, to become a hugely successful producer in in Nashville, like George Jones and Tammy Wynette and, and that whole crew. Um, and then, of course, Rick Hall, who you mentioned, was was um, hanging out there. But Rick, from what I understand, kind of broke off from that situation and went and set up his own studio and recorded. Um, Arthur Alexander's You Better Move On, which became a, a big hit and, and kind of really got things going for, for Rick Hall. Now, you, you played on that record, right? Yeah, that was one of my... I think that was the first time I had uh, what we call overdub. Uh, I uh, overdubbed the Hammond organ with with the background singers. We shared one microphone. Uh, oh, wow. You know, and I, I played really soft because I thought, well... Best thing I can do in this situation is play for the singers. You yeah. know, give yeah. them a little mood. Right. So I, I, you know, I can barely hear it myself <laughs> when I listen. But I think it was a mood thing. And, yeah. Uh, so that was uh, my first overdub experience. And uh, yeah. And then oddly enough, the next record that Rick Hall recorded that was a hit, I think, was Steel Wave, Jimmy Hughes, and mm. I did yeah. same thing there, overdubbed organ. But he had this first, what I call a first-generation house band there, David Briggs, Norbert Putnam, Jerry mm. Kerrigan. Yeah. Well, I know once those guys kind of kind of took off and, and most of them headed to Nashville that he kind of, Rick sort of recruited a second generation of, of musicians with Jimmy Johnson and Roger Hawkins and Junior Lowe, David Hood, uh, yourself. Um, and it, it seems like in that era that you and Dan really had a great opportunity to experiment with, uh, you know, working on demos in the studio after hours. And I want to hear one of those demos, um, which is the recording you guys did of uptight good woman, uh, which of course is a song that you wrote with Dan and on which he sings the lead vocals. I want a good woman. Good, a mighty good woman. Now she don't have to have, don't have to have a pretty face. Just two loving arms to keep me safe. A little woman. Courage and pride A good little woman, yeah To stand by my um, side Talk a little bit about, about those days uh, when you went to work at Fame and how that environment shaped you as a songwriter. I think Dan Penn and, uh, and Rick had this uh, special connection friendship they they'd known each other uh, a while and uh and rick gave him a key to the studio which uh and after when there was nothing going on usually at night 
My yeah. And uh, we'd get in there, and you know, he'd get his guitar out, and and I'd play the piano or organ, and we'd try to write a song, and and if we did, then we Dan had learned how to operate the tape machine up in the control room, and we'd just uh, record as he and I, and yeah, and then. Uh, Maybe two or three days later, or maybe the next day, we'd get with the the house band, the band, and hmm. and do a demo. We call it, you know. So you guys were just so, sort of uh, honing your your trade at that point. Yeah, yeah, we, we were like learning our instruments and trying to learn how to write a song, and and it had total freedom of how to go about it and what to do. And yeah, like the only the only you know occasionally Rick was Rick Hall. He might say. Uh, you know, Eddie James coming next week. If y'all got something, we can play her. Yeah, of course, he yeah. was our song publisher, also. Sure. So he had a he had a stake. But yeah, but we didn't have to. You know, we weren't expected to do anything like that. But we yeah. would usually try to custom write for an artist maybe one song. Uh, sure. But usually we just wrote for ourselves. You know, right, so to right. speak. Well, and uh, speaking of that, in 1965, Fame Records released the single Wish You Didn't Have to Go, which is credited to Spooner and the Spoons. Wish you didn't have to go, baby. Wish you didn't have to rush. Let's not call it a So what, what can you tell us about that record? Well, I, I remember Dan Penn and I wrote the song, and uh, I had this idea. I thought, well, what I'm going to do is get some of my favorite singers locally, which is Louis Robinson and Ronald English, which I was in a band with him. And uh, I think Dan and I got in there, and we all just sort of sang along together on, on one <laughs> microphone. Cool. And, and it was just sort of a fun thing, and I remember some reason I had met Joe South, the guitarist from Atlanta, and he, I decided he should be on this record for some reason. I remember waiting on him to come. He was playing on a demo session in Nashville, but we, I remember I had everybody wait and play a note till he got there, which, wow. uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you guys had that song, uh, but the first charting single that you and Dan wrote together was Let's Do It Over, which uh, Joe Simon took to number 13 in the R&B charts for VJ Records in 1965. Let's do it over. Let's do it over. Do you remember? together dear darling the many nights I held you tight dear as the world stood still I couldn't get my heart full of your precious love yeah that, that was a good moment for us or me, especially as a songwriter, because I thought, well, finally, we're getting something people are buying and listening to, mm. and that's, they're 
soon there'll be money in the bank. Well, that was my sort of introduction in the music business. What <laughs> happened is, yes, VJ uh, Records had that, and, and the, they were running full-page ad once a month on Billboard magazine, and right. it's expensive to do that. Well, Joe Simon's Let's Get Record was peaking on the charts, and, and uh, they went bankrupt. Oh, jeez. So, so <laughs> that was my introduction. I didn't get any record sales money, mechanicals they call it. But right. Of course, I did get some radio airplay money, so it was all okay. I didn't get bitter, and I just kept <laughs> trucking. They must have had some big parties, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, in in that record, Let's Do It Over, uh, I, I believe was, was produced by, by Rick at, at Fame Studios there, um, but it was really Rick's role in leasing another record to the Atlantic label that opened the doors to so many great Atlantic soul artists coming down to record in Muscle Shoals. And of course, I'm talking about uh, When a Man Loves a Woman, which opens with your very distinctive Farfisa organ. What you remember about that session? Quinn Ivy and Marlon Green were going to produce this artist. They said it was his first recording. Right. Would I play organ or keyboard on the session? I'd love to. See you whatever day. So I got over there that morning and walked in the door and uh, did the little red, shiny Italian instrument sitting there. Uh, it was, it's called a Farfisa Mini Compact Organ. And I thought, well, I don't know. You know, <laughs> you used to organ players in studios used to send those big wooden right. cabinet organs, big like Hammonds. Hammond. Yeah. Uh, so I plugged in my, uh, I turned powered up the pretty big Ampeg amplifier sitting next to me, and then I powered up the uh, little organ. The little red light comes on, and I, I noticed it's got like two buttons. One is multi-tone booster, I think it said, and so. I pressed that button and it sounded like a thousand uh, screaming bumblebees. I thought, well, Lordy <laughs> mercy. So I pushed the other button, which is the sound on the record of mm. When the Man Was a Woman. So I was, my heart settled and I, I got into the mood of the, the instrument. Right. Yeah, you had a 50 50 shot of getting a good sound out of that thing, sounds like. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, boy, I was getting a little nervous. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, that that became a huge, you know, number one record, and and once Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records caught on to the players in Northwest Alabama, he used you guys on a on a bunch of classic records. And I want to just hear some, um, want to hear some snippets from just a handful of your uh, iconic sessions. So 
That was, of course, Wilson Pickett's Mustang Sally from 1966, Aretha Franklin's I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You and You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman from 1967, and Etta James' Tell Mama, also recorded in 1967. So, Spooner, in what ways did your being a songwriter influence your approach to playing in the studio as a sideman? Well, um, you know... Like a, like an artist or singer might do. Someone wrote a song, they, and the singer didn't write it, but they they learned it for themselves, and they would you know make it their own. It was like Percy Sledge when the man was well, it's his song. He didn't you know he didn't write it, but so I learned that I, I needed to make the part my own, or, or as if I had written it, sort huh. of like you yeah. know. Yeah. So that that being a songwriter sort of helped me go into that thing pretty easily because other people had done my songs and I and I liked it they made it their own you know yeah. that's an interesting uh, interesting perspective because you know some writers uh, want to sort of micromanage but I think um what was so great about you guys in Muscle Shoals was that you had this feel and you were sort of selected because you were trusted to do what you do. And I think that's an interesting uh, perspective that being a songwriter, you understood the importance of being creative. And I, I think that's why so many of those uh, licks that you came up with, even on songs that you didn't write, uh, you know, you're putting the same sort of passion and energy into other people's songs too, just to make it special, you know, and you can really hear that. Yeah, it, to me it meant more that way to, in the long run to hear it something 20 years later to, to hopefully still like it and, and uh, enjoy what you did, you know, yeah. Sort of, yeah, rather sure. than being robotic, mechanical <laughs> about it. Right, you know? yeah. And, and of course some of the great records that you played on were your, were your own songs, uh, including I'm Your Puppet, which became a top 10 pop and top 5 soul single. Dan Penn and I got together one evening, I think, to, to attempt to write a song, and uh, Dan had just gotten a new guitar, which was a 12-string guitar, and uh, I, I'm sitting there at the baby grand piano, I think it was, and he's he's over there across the room tuning this guitar, and as and soon as he got it tuned, you know, it takes a minute to tune a 12-string, because you got mm-hmm. 12 strings. And, yeah. So we got a tune, and he's just sort of tinkering and doing a little riff called 
same era that I'm Your Puppet was a hit. Of course, you and Dan had uh, success with Solomon Burke's Take Me Just As I Am, uh, Percy Sledge's It Tears Me Up, which was a top 20 pop hit and a top 10 uh, R&B hit. I see you walk with him. I see you talk The songs that you and Dan wrote in that era are deceptively simple, but they're also richly soulful. Um, and that's a hard thing to, to, to pull off, you know? Um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what it was about your partnership uh, with Dan that made the two of you such good collaborators. Well, I don't know. We just sort of uh, work well off each other, I guess you'd say. You know, it's like... Uh Sometimes I'd come in with the title and ideas. Sometimes he would. Sometimes I'd have a melody. Sometimes he would. So it was just the uh, ability to play off each other or hear something we like and and go with it. You know, I'm in. You know, let's write this thing. Did you guys typically kind of hunker down and and focus in and and finish songs quickly, or did you kind of just play with them over time, or how did how did that typically work? One thing I learned or liked about writing with Dan Penn, which is a little different than other people I've written with, uh, pretty much if we had an idea or beginning of a song, I could count on leaving wherever I was with a song, huh. you know. <laughs> and I don't always do that. And that's a good thing. He was motivated that way, and he helped me get motivated that way, you know. Yeah. We start something, let's finish it. Yeah. That kind of attitude. That's cool. So and he'd write usually write it down, uh, pen or pencil on on a pad and one line at a time. You know we wouldn't move forward until uh, that line was captured. Oh wow, you interesting. Know, pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, in, in this era when you guys were having so much success with soul music, you also had a top forty country single with uh, Bobby Bear called "In the Same Old Way." In the same old way. I still love you And the same foolish heart Still beats for you Nothing's changed about me Since you walked out that day And I still love you In the same old now, were you and Dan intentionally trying to get your songs cut up in Nashville in those days, or how did that come about? That's a good question. I, I, I don't think we're targeting Nashville uh, with our song necessarily, but, but there's always been some kind of little 
connection with Alabama and Tennessee and also sure. Memphis and New Orleans. Southern thing, you know, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah I think Rick Hall may have uh, known Chet Atkins a bit. And, uh, yeah, and Chet produced it, right? Something like that. I, and uh, yeah. just played somebody's song, and they, you know, hey, we'll do that with Bobby Bear if he likes it kind of thing. Now, I understand that you left the Muscle Shoals area and relocated to Memphis in the late 1960s where you joined up with Chips Moment and uh, got back together with Dan Penn, who had already moved there to work with Chips. So what prompted you to leave fame? Well, it, it wasn't that uh, anything got me to leave fame. I think uh, I think I was missing uh, riding with Dan, for mm. one thing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, But he and Chips wrote a couple of great songs that first year. They opened the studios, uh, Dark in the Street and uh, Do Right Woman. Yeah, <laughs> classics. You know, that, uh, but anyway, uh, so Chips one day, I was in New York on Aretha Franklin recording session, and we took a break, and he was playing guitar, and I'm playing organ or piano with Aretha, doing the other keyboard, and so Chips says to me, he he reached in his pocket, peeled out five $100 bills, and said, why don't you come to Memphis and write with me and Dan? <laughs> and... Uh, that's all it took is an invitation <laughs> because uh, mentally I was ready for a change or to move. It wasn't that anything happened here at Fame and Must Show. It's just that I'm young and single and yeah. wanted a change at that time, I think. Sure. And, and I know it wasn't long after you moved to Memphis that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And, of course, we know how that affected the nation and the whole world. But... I'm curious at, at how that resonated throughout the music business and, and among the musicians that you knew. I think the air changed. I don't think uh, blacks changed. I don't think whites changed after that. But I think the mood changed. And some things happened. Uh, you know, record company convention in uh, Miami. Things got a little nasty. Uh, some some uh, people got threatened and, and things threatened got tense, right? In, yeah. in the bathrooms and nobody claimed credit for it. Nobody uh, knew who they were. And, yeah. But it and uh, so yeah, people started getting scared. That must have been tough. And when you've gone through so much harmony, you know, working with black artists and other musicians and not really having to, you know, not having race be a problem, and then all of a sudden you've got this kind of issue. Yeah, it was sort of odd, you know, but just uh, as it were, it, things changed. I think, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, I know that, that in that, you know, in the aftermath of that, as the the air changed, like you said, which is a great a great description, um, a lot of the, the white guys who had been very involved in, in R&B and soul music started kind of branching out. And, and of course, Chips and Dan were already branching out uh, in Memphis. Uh, of course, I think of Dan having produced uh, The Letter, which, of course, became a number one single for the box tops. Um, but then you and Dan wrote another uh, smash hit for that group, Cry Like a Baby, which went to number two on the pop chart in 1968. Uh, tell us how you guys wrote that one. Okay, Dan uh, 
Ian, he called me one day when I was living in Memphis and said, would you help me try to write a song for the box tops? Of course, he had to, at that point, he called me, he had a number one record with the letter. Yeah. So I said, he said, people have sent me songs, but I don't really find that any of them fit, fit them well, and I'd like to try to write something for them. So I said, sure, you know, uh, we'll try. So we, we like, wrote one evening at studio we each brought our little pieces of paper, our titles, our ideas, maybe ten each, and they all ended up in the floor in the garbage. <laughs> we, we couldn't settle on on anything. So yeah. It was getting early dawn, and we were going to close the studio doors and go home and quit for the day. And so, <laughs> so we went across the street, this little place, and ordered some breakfast. And I, it wasn't anyone in there, I don't think, but me and Dan and, and the cook and ordered some breakfast. And uh, I laid my head down on the table and just to rest my head, rest my brain a minute. And, and then I raised it up and looked at Dan. I said, I could just cry like a baby. And he said, what did you say? And I said, I could cry like a baby. He said, I like that. <laughs> so I don't know if we ate breakfast or just got excited. He did. And <laughs> On the way back across the street to the studio, we had the first verse written, you know, when I think about the good love you gave me, I cry like a baby. Yeah. Living without you drive me crazy, I cry like a baby. <laughs> Lord, no, you're not a plaything, not a toy, a puppet on a string. And then he says, uh, I'll unlock the door, you go out there, crank up Hammond organ, I'll get my guitar, I'll put a 90-minute quarter-inch tape on the machine, we'll just try to ride it, finish it. Which yes. we did, and so that was that. You yeah, know. Well, it's like you said before. Once you started something with Dan, you knew you were going to finish it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, you you had another top forty single uh, on the box tops with "I Met Her in Church," uh, but you were also still keeping a foot solidly in the R and B world. And uh, I think of the song uh, "Sweet Inspiration," which was a, a pop top twenty and an R and B top five in nineteen sixty eight, as recorded by the Sweet Inspirations. was fronted by Whitney Houston's mother, Sissy, and they backed up Aretha Franklin and Elvis and many others. Uh, what I find interesting about that record is you really hear that sort of Chips Moman American Studios production style on that record, which is, is very different from the fame sound. Um, and I'm wondering if you can kind of explain the difference as a songwriter and a musician between kind of the, the Muscle Shoals sound uh, and then the Memphis vibe. Well, I don't know. You know, the studio is obviously similar but different, and the players similar but different. Uh, of course, the uh, players uh, at American Studio, they had come from, uh, like, Bill Black Combo. Uh, right. They had hit, played hit on hit records. They had their own sound in a different studio over at High and right. Royal. And yep. They had done a, a Beatles tour, some of them. You well, know, yeah, right. right. With Bill Black, so yeah. they they were experienced players, uh, just a little different uh, 
mood. Uh, they they had a lot of most of them had a lot of nightclub music experience. Sure. So they were just really seasoned, and and you know that may be a little different in the shows. We were pretty much uh, pretty young. Sure. Now so. you and Dan wrote another great song called "A Woman Left Lonely," which Janis Joplin recorded on the Pearl album, which was released in 1971 after she died. And I'd love to hear the story of that song and that record. Okay, I was by that time uh, when Janice did that song, I had gotten married and left Memphis and moved to Los Angeles. And uh, I was on a recording session with, seemed like it may have been Don Everly, I'm not certain, uh, or the Everly Brothers, uh, but Paul Rothschild, now deceased, he was the record producer. And after we finished that day, he says to me, uh, Spooner, do you and Dan Penn still write songs together? I said, well, you know, sometimes, of course, I live here. He lives in Memphis still yeah. at that time. But uh, And I've got a, one verse of a song that he and I have written. There, We didn't finish this song. Huh? It's an odd thing. Yeah. <laughs> but for whatever reason, we had one verse, and that was it. So I, I sat at the piano and played him, sang a one verse. He says, I'm going to produce Janis Joplin's next album. And he said, well, you... Finish, y'all finish that song, and I, I feel like we'll do that with Janis Joplin. Wow. So that was uh, motivating for me to get on the plane, son. <laughs> I bet. Called yeah. Dan and told him he's all into it. So we, well, I went back to Memphis. We finished writing the song. Went back to Los Angeles with the tape. Played it to him, and they did it. You know. Wow. And I got to meet her in the process, and I think I met her. A day or two before she died. Wow. You know, huh. You know, Were so. you there in the studio when they cut it? That's a good question. I, I remember, I think so. I, I remember being in the studio when when I walked in there. They were doing me and Bobby McGee. Wow. And she was playing acoustic guitar and singing. And I remember Paul Rothschild, an engineer, asked me to come on up there sit at the control board with them and so they did a, a take of it and uh, he says to me I think I get a session player to do her guitar part and I said none of my business but I wish you'd leave it alone it's pretty right. funky but it's good but yeah. I don't I'm sure yeah I remember hearing it my song in the studio and meeting those guys there. yeah right. they knew a little about me and I knew a little about them so right it was fun. I'm sure hearing Janice and being there, you know, with her, watching her, especially watching her record me and Bobby McGee, I mean, she must have had quite a presence. And I'm, I'm curious, of all the artists that you've been around and worked with, were there any artists that just knocked you off your feet and just gave you goosebumps when you heard them sing? Well, yeah, so many, so many. Yeah. Uh, I've been blessed with opportunities and willing to work, and I've been around a lot of good, about all of them that I've toured with, hmm. uh, blew me away, like J.J. Kale and... yeah. And Linda Ronstadt. And oh, sure. Joe Carker. I've never wow. recorded with him, but he was interesting to work with. And then <laughs> um, Richard Betts. Oh, uh, yeah. Aretha Franklin, of course. First sure. time I heard her open her mouth and play a note, blew me away. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, after you know working behind the scenes as a as a songwriter and a backing musician for so many years, uh, you released your first LP in 1972, which was called Potluck. And I want to hear a little bit of a song that you and Dan wrote on that album called Julie Brown's Forest. Oh, no. 
record reminds me of kind of like what Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm were doing in the band and it, it well, has good, good. You know, I like that band thing yeah yeah, yeah. It, you know it has echoes of your R&B roots but it's also kind of moving in, in that rootsy band kind of direction and I'm wondering were you kind of in search of, of new sounds at that point in your career in the early 70s yeah well see I had moved to Los Angeles and uh, just gotten with another studio band uh, which included uh, Emory Gordy Jr., bass player. That, yeah. uh, he and Patty Lovis married, and right. he produced her records. And the drummer was Dennis St. John. He came from Atlanta, Alarorbson band. And um, Richard Bennett was a teenage guitarist from Los Angeles. And we were all young and, yeah, into trying, experimenting, or whatever. But that album you mentioned, Potluck, the only one I've done, and there's going to be a reissue in June or July 2015 of Light in the Attic uh, record company which does a lot of reissues Sure. after 40 years it's coming out again (laughs) it's coming back (laughs) well in in the 70s you hooked up with Freddie Weller who of course had been a member of Paul Revere and the Raiders before uh, scoring his first major solo hit with Games People Play Um, But you and and Freddie teamed up to write uh, Another Night of Love, which became a top five country hit in 1971. And and you wrote other uh, Freddie Weller hits with him, including Roadmaster and She Loves Me Right Out of My Mind and Love Got in the Way. Uh, But probably your most successful collaboration with Freddie was um, the song Lonely Women Make Good Lovers, which was a top five country hit uh, twice, once for Steve Warner in 1984 and earlier for, for Bob Lumen in 1972. Lonely women make good lovers They're all at the mercy of a good-looking, smooth-talking man Lonely women make good lovers So if you got a woman, let her treat her just as good as you can um, how did you and Freddie start working together? When I met Freddie, he, we were both living in Los Angeles, and he was still on the final days of the Paul Renner Raiders thing. And he'd also just finished recording Against People Play, which he had a hit on. Well, uh, I think the thing that we were both from the South, he's from Atlanta and I'm from Alabama. Yeah. Probably heard a little about each of us. You know, he, he's a songwriter and I'm a songwriter. We were sort of out of pocket with other writers, I guess, at that time, pretty <laughs> right. much. Yeah. So just sort of a natural thing to try it. And um, and, and also, he was uh, becoming this country singer, so I wasn't really thinking of it in his turn, but uh, I guess about most everything we write, he would record, you yeah. know. Now, before you got together with Freddie, uh, nearly all of your success had come through collaborating with Dan Penn. So how was it different um, writing with Freddie versus working with Dan? Similar, you know, it's just, it's just player songwriters are, are similar. I yeah. think uh, to play an instrument, you 
people I got to work with uh, who are musicians, songwriters. Uh, I, I love, like Bob Seger, you just sit down with a guitar and you play the song you wrote. Hmm. You copy the chords, and then the next time through, you play it in the band with him. You know, hmm. so it's really wow. it doesn't have to be complicated. Yeah. Well, and, and you're somebody who is who is great at doing both, both playing and writing. And I want to ask you a couple questions about about being a band member. As a keyboard player, what's your favorite instrument? If if you had to pick that you wanted to sit down, you were going to play either acoustic piano, Hammond organ. Fender Rhodes, Wurlitzer, what what would be your favorite thing to sit down and play? Well, forever and still, I've got favorite instruments, and that's acoustic piano, which could be an upright, it could be a baby grand, it could be a grand, it doesn't really matter. Mm. Or, uh, and then the Wurlitzer electric piano I really like, and, and uh, Hammond organ I've always liked. It, it just varies in my brain with, with the song, mm. you know, and what I feel that might go with the song better. Yeah. Like in your soul, you're always serving the song. I guess a songwriter never stops being a songwriter. Yeah, right? it's all about the song. Yeah. To me. Without a song, it's not a whole lot of music either. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, um, starting in the late 1970s, you became an integral part of Neil Young's studio and road bands for many years, and you obviously had worked extensively with many artists who didn't necessarily write their own songs. But Neil is, of course, one of the great songwriters of the rock era. So, was he more hands-on in terms of? Uh, what kind of arrangements he wanted from you, or did he kind of just leave you to do your thing? Well, I'll give you an indication of how I think and work uh, with whomever, and Neil included. Uh, Duck Dunn and I did an album with Neil several years ago, and we're out, we're out at Neil's ranch recording studio, and we take a break, and we're out on the steps of a porch, and Duck and I, and he looks over at me and says, you're like me, you play to the song. <laughs> So, in, in essence, that's about it. That's you know, cool. Play to the song, and that'll get you somewhere, usually. <laughs> well, you know, you also played with Bob Dylan a good bit uh, in the studio and on the road uh, when he was kind of doing his, his gospel era. Um, right. And as a songwriter, had had you been influenced by Dylan's work, you know, back in the 60s, or, or was the R&B world that you were operating in just kind of a, a different universe from what Dylan was doing yeah. back then? Uh, Bob Dylan... Uh, came to my attention in the 60s, uh, actually probably through Peter, Paul, and Mary, Blowing in the Wind, that song. That, yeah. That was good, and a uh, couple of things that they were doing, and I sort of started learning about Bob. I, you know, I doubt if I was influenced by him as such. I was influenced by everyone I hear of that I like uh, yeah. in reality, but um, I never bought any of his records, so. Yeah. But I appreciated his songwriting and sure. what he was trying to do. Well, I, I know you, you mentioned that you spent time in Los Angeles, uh, you know, working as a session musician and playing with people like Jackson Brown and, and Linda Ronstadt, the Everly Brothers, and, and many, many other artists. Um, and more recently, you, you've continued to do so with people like Frank Black or Cat Power or the Drive-By Truckers. Um, and of course, you were, as we mentioned, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a sideman in 2009. But even in the midst of working with these high-profile artists, you've often kind of stripped things down and returned to the basics of simply being uh, a songwriter. Um, and I think of like when you and Dan did your, your tour together in the late 90s, just kind of showcasing some of your classic hits. Um, 
do you prefer backing up other musicians or do you enjoy kind of getting in the spotlight and, and showing off your own catalog a little bit? Well, I like uh, backing singers and playing along with bands and singers uh, a lot. But on the other hand, I, I realize that to me, the songwriter singing thing is a challenge. It's not just something uh, I've sought to do, but because right. I don't sing often and it's like I don't remember my songs or try to <laughs> I have to look at the lyrics so yeah but yeah I still I will always prefer uh, playing on records yeah yeah well you you've know. certainly had the opportunity to uh, soak up a lot of great music over the years and you've had a an opportunity to create a lot of great music over the years and I know that Paul and I are both grateful for your contributions as a musician and for the the classic uh songs that you have written and uh we are we are both certainly fans and it has absolutely been an honor for us to speak with you today. Yep, absolutely. Well great. You know, have a good evening. All right. You take care. Thank you. Take care. All right. Thanks again to Spooner Oldham for spending some time with us today on Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. Be sure to stop by the iTunes store and leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show. And also you can stop by songcraftshow.com to send us a message, see upcoming episodes, and find out everything you need to know about Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. 